Hello, Athlete Mindset community. This is Lisa Bontasumi, the host of Athlete Mindset. Before we dive into this episode, I want to invite you to support the mission and purpose of our show. For $10 a month, you can help to make sure these conversations get to as many athletes, teams, coaches, and sport mental health environments as possible. As a subscriber, you will receive exclusive content and updates on current topics in athlete mental health, and you'll be directly contributing to the betterment of mental health for all athletes. Join the cause. Subscribe at sportse.io slash athlete and make a difference today. Again, that's sportse.io slash athlete. With your support and amplification, we can ensure more voices are heard and more individuals and communities are positively impacted. I am so honored right now to have Dr. Wilsa Charles Malveaux, a sports psychiatrist in LA, California, on the podcast with me today. We've been building this and trying to connect for years, years. So Dr. Wilsa is what I call her. I call her Dr. Wilsa. Is the CEO of WCM Sports Psych. She completed her BA and MA in psychology at Stanford. Her medical degree at Howard University College of Medicine and her residency in psychiatry at UCLA. She is a former elite track and field athlete who trained for the Summer Olympics in track and field. She is a tireless advocate and educator on the intersection of mental health, sports, and racial and social justice. Dr. Wilsa has served in many clinical and leadership roles in sports, including as a consultant to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, a member of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Committee's Mental Health Registry, like myself, so we are there together, a psychiatrist for the NBPA's Mental Health and Wellness Program, the Western Regional Trustee on the Board of the Black Psychiatrists of America, and the inaugural chair of the BPA Sports Psychiatry Committee. I mean, what? Like... I'm sitting with you right now. Like, this is awesome. I mean, it makes sense for so many reasons why we are sharing space today, but I'm just so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm so glad we got this together after all these years. (laughs) This will be the beginning of many. The beginning of many. Absolutely. So I get a lot of questions as a licensed mental health clinician myself. Like, what is the difference between therapy and psychiatry? And so I would love you to shed some light on that for all of us. Absolutely. And and I I get questions about that too. A lot of times Uh people get psychologists and psychiatrists mixed up. Uh So both psychologists and psychiatrists are doctorate level professionals. So both of us are in that realm of treating patients. But psychiatry is a field of medicine. So psychiatrists are physicians. We go to a medical school. And this is the field of medicine that we've chosen. So in psychiatry, at the very basic level of it, we are medical doctors that diagnose and treat things regarding to mental illness. One thing that I love about the field is that it's still very much, you know, people describe medicine as an art. Psychiatry is definitely uh-huh. very much still that. Uh-huh. And in addition to being able to diagnose things and and seeing when there's a medical cause, like a 
a cause in the body or whether it's in the brain or whether it's hormones, et cetera, that could be contributing to what's happening. Yes, we do also prescribe medications, but that's not the, the only thing. Even in some states, there's other providers who are licensed to do that as well. But just understanding how this works with the body and being trained in the body, we bring that. But we also bring a holistic view. A lot of psychiatrists still do therapy. It's not all. There's some who prefer to focus on just medication management. There's some who even exclusively do therapy. I myself do both. Medication management and therapy. But I hope that that clears it up for people. So then the bottom line, psychiatrists are medical doctors that Mm -hmm. practice and treat mental illness. There you go. No, I love it. I love it. And let's, very helpful, very helpful, I'm sure. And can you break down for me your sort of definition or approach in regards to the difference between mental health and mental illness? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that. Oh, good. Good. I really am because I know that a lot of people have a lot of stigma and misinformation and misunderstanding of psychiatry. Even before I went into the field, I'll admit that even I thought of it kind mm-hmm. of that way, even though my training and background was in psychology. And it's almost like this, this feeling, this thought like, oh my gosh, is it that bad? Or I'm not crazy. Or why do I have to see a psychiatrist? And you see right. the movies where they're doing like scary treatments. And it's not that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mm-hmm. never, ever in the past that. I understand that. but really in this field, it's important for us to break down that stigma to help people to understand that everyone has mental health. Everyone needs Mm -hmm. care of their mental health. Everyone might not have a mental illness, but just like we have to take care of the rest of our health and the rest of our body, and we see our doctors should be for annual checkups and taking care of if we broke something or if someone were to have diabetes, which would be an illness, just like that with the mind. You may have an illness that needs to be treated by a physician that's a mental illness, but even if you didn't, you still have your mental wellness that needs to be taken care of. That's right. Yeah, that's part of seeing the whole person. No, I love it. I love it. That's a really, really great breakdown. I think it's another really huge question that I get. What's the difference between mental health and mental illness and that we all have mental health and live on a continuum. Yeah. So I think that's really, really important. Could you give me, of course, keeping your confidentiality and privacy mm-hmm. intact, can you give me a scenario of a situation in the past or currently in working with an athlete from a psychiatric standpoint? Sure. So I can't talk currently because okay. uh, confidentiality, but over the course of my time of working with athletes, I mean, there's, there's a number of okay. situations that come up. One thing that is very near and dear to me is helping people to understand their identity outside of just their sport. Mm. Helping people to understand sports and participating in sports is, it's a wonderful opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful learning experience. It teaches you about the world, interacting with other people, about yourself, but it's not something that lasts forever. No matter who you are, no matter how you are, it's not going to last forever. And I think it's very important for athletes to recognize that they need to plan for whenever that time comes, what are they going to do? So some of the work that I do is is helping them to understand what they've gained from this experience and leveraging that from their future. Also, some of that whole identity piece that's important is while you're in it, you know, there's different ways that people interact with you when you are a high-level athlete. If you mm-hmm. just signed a contract with a major team for a national league, 
that's going to change some relationships. So sometimes there's issues with adjusting to those changes and being able to decipher who's really here for me, who's looking out for me, what is best for me, what's my responsibility with respect to these other people, and who are some people that our roles have changed or they've changed in the way they interact with me because of what's just happened and how do I feel about that and how do I work through that? Uh So that also ties into identity and helping people understand that they are not their sport. They are a person. If they have certain feelings that come up because of those changes in relationships, like there's not something wrong with them. That's normal to feel that way. So helping them to understand as well, athletes I work with in general, the difference between when it is something that's just a normal emotion that's difficult versus there's an illness going on and that's why you're reacting this way. That's why uh-huh. you're this conflict with these people. That's why you and your coach and your teammates might be butting heads. And if we deal with that issue, it's going to be easier for you. And you're going to be having an easier time to perform, to participate in practice, to bond with other people. But that has to be treated. And no amount of of therapy is going to fix the illness. We we treat illnesses. But if it's not an illness, you know, we can still be that support and encouragement and guide and help to develop insight. So there's two different sides to it. It's not all about sickness or being unwell. That's right. That's right. And in your role, you know, doing talk therapy and prescribing medicine when needed, if Mm -hmm. in that scenario, Mm -hmm. it does venture into mental illness or becomes challenging in that way where it meets criteria and there's a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. what would change to make that happen? So that's where it matters what level the athlete is performing at, not in terms of how good they are, but in terms Uh of where they are in their career. Is this, are we talking about a high school athlete, a college athlete, or professional athlete? Because there's a lot of stakeholders, uh, especially when you get into college athletics and and higher. College athletics, there's still student athletes, but for any of us who have been student athletes, we know that there's a lot of pressure still placed and a lot of expectations on both of those, almost equally or sometimes more. Uh Um, with my responsibility to sport. And there's a lot of people that are higher up that are literally, this is a business. This is their job. There's a lot at Uh stake. So I say that to say, sometimes there are issues that come up with different medical issues, not not necessarily just psychiatry, where there's treatment that's needed, but because of potential side effects, because of potential things like weight gain, or slowed reaction time. That might not happen, but because people know that that's a possibility, the entire team of stakeholders might not be on board with that. So being able to navigate those spaces is important in this field when dealing with athletes. Being able to know who do I need to get certain things cleared by? What are the bounds of our confidentiality? Because that's very important. To uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, they're, they're people. And they deserve their privacy and their safety. There's uh-huh. certain things that are mandated to be reported, certainly if there's something that's a risk to themselves, um, a danger to themselves or someone else. But being clear about those things so that no one is being betrayed, but that understanding you're still working with an organization. So that's where you really have to get that experience and know how to manage those situations. Yeah. And you have a lot of experience in that way and are talking very clearly and eloquently about that process and really highlighting some of the potential, I don't want to say sort of conflicts, but like making sure that all the stakeholders are 
on the same page and understand yeah. what it means. Yeah. You're right. Sometimes it can be a conflict. Yeah. It can be. Gotcha. So okay. understanding how to, to navigate that, it, it can get tricky. Yeah. It can get tricky. I mean, sometimes athletes might be willing to start something and then the trainers or someone may say, no, we don't want you doing that. Or the coach may say, we don't want you doing that. And that might influence, even if they can't say you're not allowed to, that may influence if they're going to continue that. But these same people may also be the ones supporting them. I value athletic trainers. Yes. They're often the first yep. people to find out about what's going on or see uh-huh. the problem. And they advocate for the athletes. I've had them when my days when I was an athlete advocate for me as well. So they're very valuable members of the team. Yes. So it could be those people that actually encourage the athletes to follow through with what they're supposed to do with treatment as well. So it's all about building those relationships and understanding your role in the organizations that help it to work together as a team. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I can't say enough about athletic trainers. I mean, the, yeah. the contracts my company has with colleges, the athletic trainers are the ones exactly doing that, making the referrals, building the relationships. Yeah. It's so important because they're sitting on the table or like working out mm-hmm. or doing whatever. And there's a chatting. What are you going to do? Sit in silence? No. Like, right. it's like, how are you? And like, <laughs> they are trained too. They have a very important training component to their own development as in their profession around mental health. And so it's really, really important and great to partner with them. I know that you have been a high level track and field athlete, trained for Summer Olympics. How... And if does that connect to your desire to be in this field? Completely. <laughs> okay. 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 Tell us. Not, tell us. Not just from a track and field standpoint, but my, I mean, I was a, a four sport athlete growing up. Oh. I was recruited when it got time for college for both track and soccer. Oh, wow. And I love both of those sports. But I had a lot of injuries. I was injury prone. And it kind of started with the one where I broke my ankle the year before the Olympic trials in in 95. The trials were going to be 96. But that fall of 95 was the first time I had a major injury. And my ankle was broken. And long story short, there were a lot of effects after that. Even after training that summer and still going through the whole like regionals and everything for Junior Olympics and still selected for the Junior Pan Am Games the next year, that injury was was nagging. And there was a lot that I learned, and I'll say the the hard way, not because of any sort of stubbornness or anything on my part, but just when you're a kid, you don't you don't really know, you don't really realize. Uh-huh. And the nature of relationships with your your coaches and your teammates when you're in high school or even in these club teams is very different once it gets to the college level. And finding that out, especially if you are used to performing at one level and you have to get back there. Or right. an expectation and whether or not you stay there, like dynamics change, they can change quickly. Uh-huh. So that was a learning experience for me. And those injuries came back later. I talk about it even on my site that it wasn't even initially psychiatry that I had planned on, on going into. And even though my background was in psychology, and even though things really happened very naturally. And, and every time I ended up back in that space, things would just kind of fall into place. And, and I think that's another a lesson, maybe a talk for another day about operating it in your strengths and in your zone. Uh, How things just happen when you're uh-huh. is powerful. So before I realized that that's really where I was meant to be from the beginning, it was because of 
the things, the people who did care about the injuries I had, the people who did speak up for me, the ways that I saw dynamics change with teammates, um, with coaches, and not even just for me, for other teammates as well. Those things really led me to care about those things for my patients. And when I was planning on going into a surgical field, I probably wouldn't have been that efficient because I would have been trying to talk to them about all these things and <laughs> that would have been my role. And it really took time for me to realize that with sports and with athletes, like my passion is really helping them to overcome these things. Because oh. I know the effects. Uh-huh. And I've experienced it. I've seen it. And to help them to realize like their highest potential. And not even just athletes, anyone who's a high performer can. Yes. Again, sports is such a great learning tool, but it relates to life. So anyone who's a high performer can have those types of setbacks and slumps. And yeah, helping people through that, that's really what I'm passionate about. Mm, Well, obviously, I can hear it coming through the screen like it's awesome. And what an amazing add and value that you bring to any therapeutic relationship with your own personal experiences. So there's a deep empathy that can't be denied because you've been there. So yeah. I love that. It's so Thank amazing. You. Yes. If I, and I will, refer <laughs> an athlete or high performer to you, maybe for a consultation, mm-hmm. what can that person expect from that initial consultation with you? Sure. Well, the first thing, which I think is hugely important, but sometimes people don't understand. If I don't feel that at any point in time, it's a good time to bring on that responsibility of caring for another person, then I'll say like, now is not a good time for new referrals. I think that there's some people in different fields, whether it's medicine or not, that may just keep people coming like it's a mill and you just keep them in. And for uh financial reasons, that's never been me. I want to give quality time to everyone that I see. If I see that, you know, today we might need more then we'll do that. But my point is for them to really feel heard and understood and be taken care of. Uh I get a lot of background information. You'll hear people that work in sports have concerns about pathologizing athletes and Uh looking for something wrong to prescribe them, to rebuke any any stereotypes or misperceptions people may have about physicians and psychiatrists. We're not getting a kickback for prescribing anything. <laughs> right, exactly. That's not how this works. So, exactly. But that's important. I mean, we're laughing, but that's important. For people Super to know, because they yeah. really think yeah. that. I mean, yeah, exactly. I've heard people say, like, it's, it's stuck in a hospital. I've heard people say, like, that's because they're trying to get more money from your insurance. It's a lot of psychiatric hospitals have actually closed doors because if it's not something that does procedures, it generally loses money for the uh-huh, hospital. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So every day, it's thousands, thousands of dollars per patient every day. So just so that people have more trust and faith in what's happening, like if you're still there, it's because there's still something else that needs to be done to help you. Uh-huh. I guarantee you nobody is getting extra for you being there and or for them prescribing medication to you. Uh-huh. Similarly, I'm very honest with my patients if I feel like it's something they need or don't need. Sometimes people might come because they think, oh, I have ADHD, I need the stimulant. If you have it, and if I determine you have it, then we can talk about treatment options. But if I don't think you need it, then we're not doing that. Uh Similarly, if I think there's something going on and you think you have one diagnosis, but I'm like, actually, after talking with you, it looks like it's this other thing. I'll be honest and I'll tell them the treatment options. 
but they can also expect that I value their autonomy and I am going to give them options, explain the options, make sure they understand what's happening. And then it's up to them because I'm not going to be there at their home forcing them to take medication. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, make it easy for them to make those decisions because they understand and they feel like they're really in partnership with what's happening. Uh-huh, absolutely. I love that. Mm-hmm. When you get referrals just for medication, you know, evaluation, do you approach it any differently than what you just described? No, because to me, first of all, I do my own evaluations for everyone. I know there's some people who they've been carrying a diagnosis from doctor to doctor to doctor and medication right. from doctor to doctor for years. Sometimes don't even know the diagnosis that they're being treated for, or they know the diagnosis, but they don't really know how it was come by. They don't understand why they're taking the medications they're on. They're like, well, I've just been on it. So I always assess people myself. Uh-huh. It's important. If I'm treating them and if my signature is going on that script, then I need to agree with what's happening. So, yeah. Yes, ma'am. I could. <laughs> we could talk for a, a whole other show in hours about that part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of the questions I get a lot is if I'm going to refer as a licensed clinical social worker, as a therapist, a psychotherapist to someone like you, Mm-hmm. because I, in my evaluation, have found that there could be some benefit in medication, but that is not my area. I'm not a doctor, mm-hmm. but like to collaborate with amazing yes. professionals like yourself. I say to them, I want you to just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Ask your questions. This is, you're not signing away your like third born or anything to have this conversation. Learn, learn. And when I approach it like that, they're more open to it because then I think it demystifies some of like the myths that you've spoken about too that like oh you come into my room the minute you're here here comes the script pad but I think once we're there and there's a conversation and maybe a recommendation for medicine given by you and in your profession Mm -hmm. they worry about depending on it they worry about dependence and like oh I'm never going to be off of it and I know it you know, varies patient to patient, but how do you address that concern or worry from folks? So I'm going to answer that, but there's so many things I was thinking about when you're talking. Okay. So first of all, I think collaboration with other mental health professionals is important and essential. There's not enough psychiatrists in the country, in the world, for everybody to just have that readily accessible all the time. Mm -hmm. And all of us can't do therapy with every person because there's just not enough time. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, it's important to partner. And we do have, I do have patients that are getting therapy elsewhere. And that's fine. I still talk to them about their whole person when I see them. But um, that doesn't interfere with our relationship with respect to the medications. The other thing is that oftentimes with me, it might not even be the first visit where I'm making medication recommendations because I really like to go through, there's certain things I always try to rule out. Uh And and there's certain things after doing this for years that they're talking and from the way that they're talking, I have a strong suspicion that this other thing is going on, whether that's substance issues, whether that's a history of abuse of some sort and that there might be some personality disorder that's presenting or mood disorder as opposed to the depression or anxiety or the ADHD that they thought they had. So until I know what that is, I'm not going to write for them. So I think that that's important for people to know. It's not 
can be shoved down their throat. The other thing is, it's very important, again, for people to partner and knowing the information, understanding what's happening because it's their body. And just like you said, they're not like <laughs> signing off their, the life of their third child. They also are not married. I say this to my patients all the time. You're not married to the medication. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very important for you to be able to talk to your doctor, like whether that's me or whatever doctor you're seeing for whatever problem it is, ask the questions Yes, they want to ask. Because if there is a side effect, you know, I, I hear patients say like, I don't want to be a zombie. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be knocked out or, you know, all the time. And I tell them, if that happens with this, then that's a problem that we need to address. That's not my goal either. My goal is to help you to live better, not to knock you out and have you not living your life or not to feel that's right. anything. So those are things, I understand those concerns and I do hear them, but I also remind people, that's why you tell me about those things if they happen and then we can address that. That's right. To fear that. That open communication with any provider any as, you know, as patients were consumers of services that help us be better and live well, like you said. And so if something's not working, I think a lot of people expect to have the sound effects and mm-hmm. think that that's just part of the deal mm-hmm. when we want maybe, you know, there's maybe a little bit, but like if we could get them at proper dose, you know, in your profession to mm-hmm. have minimal or no side effects, that that's, that is very possible. And I think yes. people need to hear that too. Yes, it um, definitely is. And it, it's a process. So they have to understand that everybody's body is different. So one thing might work exceptionally well for their cousin or their best friend. Right. I mean that it's going to work exceptionally well for them. And that's okay. We have to work, figure out what works well for them. That's and, right. You know, they can bring su- suggestions or questions, but at the end of the day, it's not just about, it's not a plug and chug situation with medicine in general, with psychiatry, because you might have a bleeding disorder and you can't take this other medication. Mm. might have diabetes so you can't take this other medication even though it works for what you're trying to treat even though it works well for what you're trying to treat your particular body might not be able to take that medication mm. you have to do something else so and important that's part of the importance of, of seeing a physician that knows those things yes absolutely absolutely one thing that came from what you were just saying was you consider the way the person sitting in front of you is talking not just what they're saying. That is so important. And I think the nuances of, you know, our ability to work in a therapeutic dyad like this is to observe and notice those things. That's all a part of understanding the full human, right? So I need people to hear that. I'm going to say it again. Dr. Wilson (laughs) is talking about, she's paying attention to the way you are speaking, not just what you are saying. And so people, I think, you know, don't get the sort of nuanced way we get to know our people. Mm-hmm. I think that's like so important. So thank you for bringing light to that. Oh, um, yes, of course. As a Black woman, as a Black female psychiatrist, what are some of the ways Black and Brown communities come to you around their fears based on their own experiences, their family's experiences, or the history and their culture around psychiatry? Like, how do you have conversation with folks about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Years ago, there was a group, a group of us that did a presentation a couple times for the American Psychiatric Association. And then from there, I published an article for Medscape. 
And it was all about the stigma of psychiatry in different minoritized groups. And I think we might have spoken about this before, but I myself am a first-generation American. So my family's from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yes. So with people who are from immigrant groups as well, there's a difference even by generations with how people view and interface with mental health and mental illness. So you might have people, I've had patients who they are open to treatment, they are open to therapy, but they might, in the case of an adolescent or even sometimes people in their 20s have a parent Uh that's like, Uh don't Uh take that stuff, you're going to become addicted and you're going to be dependent on this. And we talked about it, everybody agreed to the medication and then I see them (laughs) three weeks later and they're like, I didn't pick it up because, you know, my mother said this or my aunt said this. Or somebody took their meds and threw it out because they're like, no, you don't need that. You just need to pray about it. Right, um, right. As if, you know, you can't have your faith and have your medical treatment. As, exactly. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, I, I absolutely see that. Sometimes also the way that it, not really influences, but the way that it presents in treatment with new people is that oftentimes they don't necessarily know their family history because a lot of people come from backgrounds where their family is like, if I don't look, it's not there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it's not that no one in the family has never had a mental illness. No one in the family has ever gone for an assessment. No one's ever actually seen a professional to tell them. Or if a professional they saw, even their primary care provider, you know, is, is trained to pick up on these things. So even if they saw it, they didn't take medication. So nobody knows about, you know, what was going on. So that's often the case. And I, I see that a lot with families and it's hard uh-huh. to be the first person to kind of break that and to pursue this. But what I've also seen is that sometimes because this person did that and because this person got well, now their parents want to go and get their own psychiatrist. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, their sister feels like, okay, I can go to therapy. And now they're like, okay, I've been in therapy for this time, but I'm willing to take medication because I see how much better this person is doing, and I want that for me too. So it can be powerful. It can be. And you and I have both witnessed it. So, so important. Yes, we've talked about you being a first-generation American. My mom, too, is an immigrant to this country from the Philippines. So I think to this day, she doesn't know what I do. She's like, do you help people? That's awesome. That's fantastic, babe. Do you help people and you help athletes? And that, that's great. They're, they're so lucky to have you. <laughs> I've had family members say, oh, that's really important because everybody needs somebody to talk to. I'm like, it's not all I'm sitting here doing, but okay. <laughs> I mean, you and I can have another episode. That's about a whole that. other episode. Yeah. About like, I don't need a therapist because I have this best friend. I'm like, right. it's not the same thing. No. And to the point of you can have a best friend and your faith, and, and go ahead and yes. have that, you know, professional. And yes. <laughs> yes, both and. <laughs> it's both and. It's all of it holistic. Mm-hmm. You know, people can take care of themselves in a whole bunch of different ways, mm-hmm. but we're not going to have a carpenter come in and, and help you with your depression. We're just not. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? I, you say that word holistic. One thing that that reminds me of as well is the misconception that people have about like the herbal remedies, that they are harmless. And like, if they had no potency and if they were harmless, then what would be the reason that you were taking it in the first place? Like, uh-huh. they must do something. 
So you can't think that if you take this, there's no risk. You don't need to know anything about how it works. It's herbal. Okay. But all these medicines originated in nature in the first place. And then we have a way to synthetically make things so that we can control the effects. So you still have to be careful with that. I keep these giant PDRs, physician desk references on herbal medicines and other like holistic and natural remedies. Because some of these things actually have interactions with medication. Yes. So helping people understand that, no, you're not using an illicit substance, but there still can be side effects. There still can be ways that this could be bad for you, or it can work well for you, but make sure you're not taking that at the same time as this other thing. That's right. Be open about what you have on board in your body, because these are all important things to know. Mm-hmm. For sure. And that's included in alcohol intake, marijuana intake, things Mm -hmm. that are very normalized in many communities. Oh, we just do this for fun, or this is just what I do when I go out. I'm like, but there are (laughs) impacts on your brain and your body when you do this. Some positive for some people, I mean, on the marijuana side, but like know what it is you're putting in there and why and how like it can have counter effects to any medicine that your psychiatrist might prescribe. So that's super, super important. I want to ask you, any up-and-coming psychiatrists who are studying or in residency, who, like you, have a passion for the intersection of mental health sports and then the racial and social justice piece, like, Mm -hmm. if they had, like, a power talk with you for five minutes, like, what would you make sure that you would want to, like, leave them with to think about more? Like, what, what would you like to lend to that conversation? There are many voices out there that are speaking of these things. So one thing that they need to do is read. There's an article that I actually just published last month with two very incredible uh, psychiatrists. First of all, one of my mentors become friends, Dr. Alpha Stewart, who was the first Black president of the American Psychiatric Association Mm. for a hundred year history. And she's been the medical director for the WNBA for decades. She has also served the NBA in that capacity in the past as well. She and I and another psychiatrist in New Jersey, Dr. Ulrich Viu, we published an article that is really about that training and experiences that people should have and even resources for getting that understanding of working with communities of color. Mm-hmm. It's very important because there is a large population of athletes of color that need people who understand the nuances that come with that, the experience that comes with that. And there's not enough people in the field that necessarily look like them for everyone to have a provider. And even if the provider looks like them, that doesn't mean that they necessarily understand that either. Uh Uh Reading about it, learning about it, paying attention to what people who are in those positions are saying that they're experiencing. That's how you learn what's really happening in those spaces. So that would be the number one thing. I would also say this though, as they pursue this field, it's also important to be aware that this is a very competitive field Mm -hmm. and it can be kind of a a good old boys club in some instances. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have some experiences where they encounter that as they pursue reaching new heights. When they're in certain levels, it's probably not going to be an issue, but the better they get, the more they're going to see. So I would would advise them to not be surprised and learn 
through those experiences, every experience can be taken as a learning experience and learn how to sure. those situations in those spaces and not take it to heart to their identity. No, so valuable. I'm going to take it a little bit deeper okay. if it's okay with you. Okay. Now I'm you, nervous. No, <laughs> don't be, don't be, don't be. It's another opportunity for you to drop another gem for us, but you are that psychiatrist who has reached new heights and is probably going to reach for more. You are already so accomplished and are doing some amazing work. What's one way that you have dealt with impact from the good old boys club as you rise and as you do good work at the highest levels? That is a deep question. I could talk for a long time, except for the things I probably try not to say (laughs) 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 about that topic. Wow. Let me tell you, I, one thing that I think is so crucial is understanding that the higher that you go, there's more people that are striving for that, but you also become a target because Uh Uh then people are trying to figure out, well, how did this person get here? Uh Because I want to be there. And you would think that they would think, okay, well, I want to do things like them to get something like that. But instead, what happens a lot of times is people say, no, I want that. I want that position. I want that thing. Or I don't have that because of something unfair that's happened as opposed to this person, especially when you're black or brown, as opposed to them recognizing this person is talented. This person Mm -hmm. is educated. This person is experienced. And even this person might might be gifted in this way. Like this is what they're supposed to be doing. So you have to understand that the way that some people may respond may not be what you expected. You have to understand that everybody is not going to be happy about this newfound success and you really have to find your people. Oh, yeah. and find the people that you can trust and it might not always be who it is that you expected it to be. But there are people, everyone is not going to be against you or out to take what's yours and they can't. That's the other thing. I believe if it's for you, it's going to be for you. So if there's an opportunity that it goes to somebody else, that's not the one that was for you. And what's going to be for you is going to be uh, right for you. Uh, uh-huh. so having that confidence in that and separating these external attitudes and the doubts from your identity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Recognizing that it's not, I've talked about this on, on other shows before. It's not imposter syndrome when you doubt yourself because people are constantly questioning you and questioning if you deserve to be where you are. That's uh-huh. a normal response to being questioned like that. However, it's still in your power to put those people and those thoughts and those opinions in their place, in your mind, which is out of it, and focus on yourself because you can't outperform your own self-image. So what's important is how you feel about yourself and how you see yourself and your identity and not getting it wrapped up, whether it's the praise or degradation from other people. That's not what's important. It's about how you see yourself. So building that up so you know who you are, that's key to surviving and, and thriving in those spaces. For sure, for sure. Thank you for that. I mean, because you are a high performer. You know, this could be advice or thoughts or things to think about for any high performer, mm-hmm. including an athlete, mm-hmm. including a coach. So that's 
fantastic information. And thank you for digging deep into your heart for that for us. (laughs) I appreciate you. (laughs) You have mentioned your website. You've mentioned articles that you've written. Where can people find your website and this important, valuable information? Sure. WCMSportsPsych.com. That is my website. You can find links there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, but don't use it often. (laughs) um, I'm in all those spaces, but you can find links to it from my website. Um, You can find me there at Dr. Wilson at WCM Sports Psych to find me on those platforms. And uh, yeah, that's, you can find me, follow me, uh, reach out, all of those, at those places. I love it. I love it because you're a very, very invaluable resource to all of us in the space, all of us who want to enter in the space and athletes who might have some trepidation about mm-hmm. understanding. I mean, like Dr. Wilson's very down to earth, as you can hear and see, just them hearing your voice and hearing you talk is already demystifying what the interaction could be in speaking with someone like you. So that's already huge. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. I think we, we do just kind of like pull up another cup of coffee and chat some, yes. just continue to chat like <laughs> offline here because there's so much more we could do. But yes. I just appreciate your time after all this. It's so worth the wait. And I know everyone else who's listening and will agree. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Athlete Mindset is part of the CasSource Podcast Network. At CasSource, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're growing this one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you by searching CasSource on your social media app of choice. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network, the CasSource Podcast Network. 